as well as Emily and Pam as accompany us. Love that song, Passion for Thee, and we sing that just about every Friday in Preacher Boys class, and uh, brings back some great memories of singing that song in Stratton Hall, which I think at one time it was called the Concert Center, if I remember right. Anyway, uh, Stratton Hall now, and uh, we sing that just about every Friday, and uh, some great memories, wonderful time singing uh, as Preacher Boys together, uh, Passion for Thee. All right, we'll turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21, and we are coming down to the end of our series on prophecy, and again, there are so many, if I can call them rabbit trails, I don't really want to call them loose ends, but so many topics and questions I know that come up through this series, and I uh, Lord willing, we'll maybe do some standalone messages to address uh, some of those, and uh, I may not be able to answer all the questions, and I don't have all the answers, but the Word of God does, and uh, we will once again be looking at uh, the end of the world, the end of the world, and of course, the new Jerusalem, new, the new heaven, and the new earth. So I'm going to uh, bring my laptop back up here where... I can reach it better, and uh, we'll look at, again, just briefly in review, the end of the Millennial Kingdom, and Satan is released from the bottomless pit, unbelievers are judged at the great white throne judgment, judged according to their works, we talked about degrees of hell based on really the amount of light that they received and judged according to their works, so the amount of truth, of the truth that they were exposed to, as well as their deeds, and God will work all that out. And again, without getting too carried away here, because we have other things that I know we want to get to, but again, it is hard for us to comprehend. A lot of churches no longer preach on hell. There are books written that say hell is not real. There was a popular preacher many years ago named Rob Bell from Mars Hill, and he wrote a book that basically said that hell does not exist, or at least not hell the way the Bible teaches it. He's a false teacher. He was exposed uh, as such. But if there's not a judgment, if there's not a judgment for sin, if you think about all the unsolved. I just think in, in, in one term, there's many other ways we can look at it. But if there's all this unsolved crime, all these people who have had no justice served, there's all these criminals, there's all this sin, there's all this evil that goes unpunished. There's never justice brought. There's never... I mean, that means that there isn't any final accountability. Obviously, for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, Christ took that payment at the cross. He took that penalty. He made that payment. He took that penalty for us at the cross. And that free gift of salvation is offered to all, but those who reject Christ must then pay the penalty for their sins in a, a place called hell, in hell, for all eternity. And I just think of 
this cry for justice that goes throughout the land. And I think of so many people who have not received justice this side of heaven. God's going to take care of all of that. That is a that is that brings hope. That that brings peace. That means that there is a resolution for the evil. There is an end to the evil. If there, if there is no hell, if there is no great white throne judgment, then when does evil ever end? When certain people get elected and a certain party dominates all of the different branches of the government and they bring in some sort of fantasy land of a one world utopia and the Antichrist will eventually try to do that and he's not able to bring peace and prosperity and happiness. He's anti-God, he's anti-Christ, he's anti-Bible. We are desperately looking for an end to the evil, to someone, somewhere, making all this badness go away. But we have the answer in the Word of God. We have the answer from God himself in his Word, that sin will ultimately meet its end. It will be taken care of. There will be punishment for those to whom punishment is due. But again, as we'll come to the end of the book of Revelation, there is again an invitation for all to come. That is the spirit of our Savior who died for the world, who loved the world and died for the whole world and is drawing all men unto himself. But those who reject Christ will ultimately Face him at the judgment seat, the great white throne judgment. And there will be a judgment according to their works. Those not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. We talked about the torment, the fire, and the separation from the personal presence of God that is experienced by all those who have rejected Christ and go to the lake of fire. And then 2 Peter 3, we've talked about this already. The last couple of Sundays, we've looked at the real climate change, the climate change that God orders. And this is not man's doing, this is God's doing. And the, uh, the elements will, will melt with fervent heat. And 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, describes how God will destroy the, the current earth and heavens, and there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and then the new Jerusalem. So we looked just briefly last week at these principles regarding heaven. Heaven is a place of the personal presence of God, and that is first and foremost. Sin will be gone. The presence of sin will have been removed We've been saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, though there is a progressive aspect of being saved from the power of sin. And we have the Christ-likeness in our progressive sanctification that we are continually uh, growing uh, in, hopefully, as believers. But finally, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. It will be gone. And we will be in the presence of our Savior, clothed in the righteousness of Christ for all eternity. Of course, there is the perfect state of sinlessness in Christ, and there's perfect knowledge. We spent some time talking about, and as Jake read in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, we will be known even as we are known, or we will know even as we are known, and 
how all of that completely is uh, spelled out in, in heaven. I, I can't fully comprehend that. But I do know that there will be a relationship with others. There will be a relationship with believers that is uninhibited by sin. And I know that there are several people that I look forward to being reunited with, especially my dad and my mother-in-law. But think about the conversations that we will have with David and Solomon, Adam and Eve, and on and on. We could go with the list of, of Bible characters. Are we going to have the opportunity to ask them questions? I would like to think that there will be a way in which we will have conversation and there will be a knowledge without sin. There will be relationships with one another without sin. And I think, again, the special relationships that God has given us here on earth, I don't think that they're going to completely go away in heaven. I think there's still going to be a special relationship with our loved ones, though there is not the the marriage and giving in marriage. And obviously uh, the uh, bride of Christ is the family unit with uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, the the groom, and that will be uh, fulfilled completely and perfectly in heaven. But that perfect knowledge, something that, again, doesn't make us divine, but gives us an understanding of certain things that we didn't have this side of heaven. I joked around a little bit last week. At that point in heaven, all of those doctrinal divisions, obviously where it is a, I'm not talking about a false doctrine versus a right doctrine, but you know what I'm saying, those, maybe I should call it denominational differences, not so much doctrinal differences, I'm not talking about false doctrine versus right doctrine, because if someone believed in false doctrine, they wouldn't be in heaven, uh, obviously, but all of those denominational differences or those questions that we have about maybe some of the secondary applications, all of that will be taken care of. God will get us all fixed. We'll all be taken care of. And the things that we thought that we had right, we might find out that we were not right about. The things that we uh, uh, thought everybody else was wrong about, we might find out they were right and we were wrong. And uh, I know I joked around a little bit last week about I know the things that I'm going to uh, be happy that are right <laughs> in heaven and in uh, certain people that I would like to be able to say I told you so but that won't happen in heaven uh, that won't happen we won't have that kind of spirit toward one another in heaven but you know how it is there are times where you you want to be proven right and you want to be able to say to someone see I told you so and uh, God will take care of all that all of that will be straightened out and we'll find out just probably how wrong uh, we were in a lot of areas and how we maybe uh, took things too far, but God will straighten all that out. I think that's part of that perfect knowledge. Pure praise to the Lord. Our praise to, to the Lord will come again without sin. There will be no hindrances there. And what a joy it is to come together to church two or three times a week and to sing together and to praise the Lord together. And our worship is all throughout the service. I don't like the term worship leader. Uh, Jake and Derek, or whoever is leading the singing, they're not the worship leader. I know that's a modern-day term. I'm not saying it's wrong to use that term. But in a sense, I'm the worship leader as the pastor. But Jake and, and Derek, in a sense, are worship leaders as they lead the congregational singing. But in a sense, all of us individually are worship leaders. 
because each of us individually are coming before the Lord. And I, yes, we come corporately, but worship comes from the heart. We worship in spirit, the Lord in spirit and in truth. So in a sense, we all are individually worship leaders, though there is a corporate leader. But worship begins really from the time we walk in the door to the time we walk out. In a corporate sense, we have individual worship in our personal devotional life. And sometimes our individual worship takes place in our car as we are praying, as we are giving thanks to the Lord uh, with our eyes open, driving 70 miles an hour down the road. Okay, But we are accustomed to this mentality that it's that guy who stands up there at the pulpit and leads the singing. He's the worship leader, and he's the one that really is in charge of worship. And I just think that that sends the, the, uh, the, wrong, the wrong message. And again, I'm not saying it's, it's always wrong to use that terminology, but I try to avoid it as much as possible because our worship is all throughout the service. We worship in our giving. We worship in the hearing of God's word and in the preaching and teaching of God's word. We worship in our singing. And again, congregational singing is so important. It's, it's not about a performance up here. It's really about each of us individually being drawn to the Lord, yes, in a corporate setting. But does a deaf person or a blind person, do they, are they unable to worship fully because they can't see or they can't hear? I think that's wrong for us to say, well, you know, if you can't see certain effects up on the stage, on the platform, then you can't truly experience the worship. If you can't hear certain sounds and be then struck with certain emotions because of certain sounds, then you can't fully worship. I think that says that's a disservice to those who cannot hear or those who cannot see or maybe have some other kind of disability. I think that's the wrong emphasis of worship. Worship comes from the heart. And it's the depth of our knowledge of God and our relationship with him. It's out of that depth that comes our worship. And we have so much emphasis on external stimuli that we think worship begins out here. And as we have external stimulation, then we can raise our worship when really worship begins in the heart. And that will happen in heaven without sin. We will truly worship in heights of joy that we have never experienced before in, in praise to the Lord. And I, I mentioned that song already, and I mentioned it last week as we came to a conclusion. I believe it's uh, Nearer, Still Nearer, or uh, Draw Me Nearer, uh, may, might be the title of, of that hymn, where uh, heights of joy that uh, we will not reach till we rest at peace with him. And I think that is Draw Me Nearer, and that's a wonderful song that speaks to that fullness of joy that we will receive, that we will experience in, in heaven, in, in sinlessness, and in the presence of our Savior. So that brings us to the new Jerusalem. Now, Revelation 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Okay, we'll come back and maybe talk a little bit more about that last phrase there in verse number 1. But there is a new heaven and a new earth. That means that the earth and all the natural catastrophes, those go away. There will no longer be the groaning of creation. We've already experienced in the millennial kingdom the lion and the lamb being together. 
a child playing with a snake. I mentioned about being at the reptile show yesterday and people playing with snakes. That will be just normal and common. I don't know all of the types of animals that will be in heaven. Some people are just certain that their dog or their cat will be in heaven. I hate to disappoint you, but little Rover is probably not going to be in heaven. I hate to disappoint your, your, your dream of your little kitty cat being there in heaven waiting for you. I think that we will have far greater joys, again, than our, than our, 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 fur, our fur babies. And can I go on a little bit of a rabbit trail? People, I can't imagine the amount of money that people spend on their, on their pets. They, they, they cherish their pets more than they cherish children. I think there are some people, they care more about their animal than they do about their own children sometimes. And uh, air-conditioned dog houses and all these different dog kennels that, I mean, they have more luxurious hotel rooms than most of us ever get on our vacations. And, uh, and pets are, are treated like royalty now. I don't think that there's going to be that level of taking care of animals in, in heaven. Will there be animals? I certainly believe there will be. But they will be domesticated and we will have dominion as God intended like he did in the Garden of Eden. So I would imagine that similarly, similarly to the Garden of Eden, heaven will be when it comes to, to heaven uh, and, to, and to animals. So new heaven and new earth. The, gro- the groaning of creation will, will cease. But verse number two, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is the capital city, the central place that we will inhabit along with God in his presence. And there is the description in verse number two of the bride adorned for her husband. That speaks to the inhabitants of the city. That there is finally the meaning of the universal church. We talk about the church. We live in the church age. The church age is right now those who get saved between the cross and Christ's return. The rapture. Okay, We call that the church age and dispensationalism. We talk about the dispensation of the church. So we are in that church age. But there will be the assembly and the assimilation of all of the redeemed in the new Jerusalem. And all of us together as the universal church will be there as the bride of Christ in the new Jerusalem. And again, some of us, you, you, you hate driving through a city. You don't want to be anywhere. You want to have land, lots of land. And how's that song go? Um, I forget, don't fence me in, however that song goes. You want land, lots of land, don't fence me in kind of property. And, and that's great. And you, some, of, some of us are, are more introverted. Some of us are more extroverted. Uh, some people, they could go into a cave somewhere and never see another person the rest of their life, and they'd be happy with that. Okay? God's called us to be relational. I went, I went, to, a, I went to a meeting one time down in, down in the south. And this guy got up in this meeting and he began to just go off on how God never ordained cities. Cities were evil. I couldn't believe this guy. I was listening to this guy give this lecture. 
And I, I never felt more uncomfortable in all my life. I was kind of slumping down in my seat because I'm a, I'm a city kid. I'm from Indianapolis, grew up there, and I, I love Lafayette, but I, I, I've been in Indianapolis much of my life. And then this guy is just talking about how he looks out across the, the, the city of Atlanta, and he practically has tears of sorrow because God never intended for people to be in a city. And I got to thinking, what does he, what does he say about the New Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven? There's going to be millions, if not billions of people there, plenty of room for us, and we're going to be there without traffic jams and stoplights. We're going to be there without crime, without violence. We're going to be there without all of the problems and the vices of city life and all the stresses of city life and everything else that goes with it. Perfect harmony and in praise to the Lord in the presence of our, of our Savior, as a bride adorned for her husband. So we see the New Jerusalem is the capital city of heaven. It is the central place of the bride's habitation. We see that also down in verse number 9. Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Verse number 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And again, he's referring to, yes, the physical aspect of the city, but also including the inhabitants who are the bride of Christ, as saved, as redeemed individuals. Verse 26, we also see it there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. We see the redeemed enjoying the new Jerusalem, bringing the glory and the honor of the nations into it. I do not know exactly what that means. Commentators differ, and they kind of have their ideas. But what do the nations, most of the nations do right now? They fight and argue amongst each other. Trade wars, physical wars. This country has these laws, and this country has these laws. And there's poverty, and there's crime, and all of the wars, and the strife, and the problems and the vices and the trouble of the nations, it's gone. We cannot comprehend right now what that is like because all we do when we see the news is this nation fighting another nation, this people group against this people group. All of the famines and all of the government political crises, gone. The nations will bring glory and honor into the new Jerusalem as the redeemed of the Lord. What an incredible place that will be. And then we also see a place of unsurpassed beauty. We don't have time to read all of this wonderful chapter. But let's summarize, first of all, down in verse number 11. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, some have, some commentators believe that this is actually the description more of a diamond than a jasper stone. But when the Bible says jasper, I believe that it's referring to jasper. But it's a pure jasper that is so much better than the jasper that we are used to on, on this incursed earth. This is a beautiful jewel of jasper, unlike anything that we can possibly imagine. And that's the description of the new Jerusalem there in verse number 11. This is a stone, if, if we were to ask 
some of the, the ladies to show their most precious stone jewelry. I don't know, I'm not here to ask anybody to admit what level of, of carrot of diamond that they have or what your most precious jewel would be. Did you hear about the, the preacher and his wife in New York City who got robbed during a church service? And they took $1 million worth of jewelry from the pastor and his wife. If somebody came in here and robbed me and Kelly, <laughs> I don't know if they'd even get $1,000 worth of jewelry from us. They took a $1 million worth of jewelry from that pastor and his wife. I'm like, who walks around? Anyway. There are, I've been, to, I've been to London. I did not get to see the crown jewels. I don't know if anybody has been to London and been uh, to, to see the crown jewels. But the crown jewels are nothing compared to the jewels and the, stone, the stones of heaven, of the new Jerusalem. There's continued descriptions down in this chapter. Verse 12, and had a wall great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. So each of the gates, there's an angel, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So there is the gate of Reuben, and the great gate of Issachar, and the gate of Ephraim, and the gate of, I'm assuming, Joseph, or Zebulun, or Manasseh, and Ephraim. I mean, the 12 tribes of Israel, each of the gates is named after a tribe, and there's an angel at each gate. And then we see, uh, as we continue to read down, on the three east gate, on the on the east three gates, verse thirteen, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then there's the argument: Will Matthias be one of the names, or will it be Paul? Okay, I can't be overly dogmatic. We know Judas is out, obviously, as the one who betrayed Christ. I believe it's Paul. We can argue all day long. It could be Matthias from Acts chapter 1. I believe it's Paul as those 12 names, along with the, the other 11 apostles. But, but again, that's not something that we need to, uh, to fight one another and divide up about. We'll, we'll know one day um, exactly who those, those 12 are, but... Uh, more than likely, it's, it's, it's Paul uh, who's named there. Verse 15, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. This is a perfect cube. And I, I, I taught geometry. I, I enjoy geometry. I know that some kids, they, they, they can't, they're not very conceptual. But it's fascinating to think of the New Jerusalem as this perfect cube. There's equal, it says there, the city lieth four square. And there's equal length. And we know that a square has equal length on all sides. That's what makes it a square. Now, I'm going to back out for a second. And here is one artist's description of the New Jerusalem. Or how they tried to compare it to 
the earth. I don't know if this helps, but the New Jerusalem, if seen as a cube, it has sides that are 1,500 miles each. 1,500 miles tall, long, and width. So, that would make the New Jerusalem, let me make sure, if we took 1,500 times 1,500, we would get basically 2,250,000 square miles. So, that would be that part, as you can see from the picture, of North America, of the United States, and even up into Canada. That is one maybe way of helping us to kind of get in our, our mind's eye around the size of the New Jerusalem. Go back here, and then go back to our, our notes. So, we are seeing this New Jerusalem and the beauty of it, and the perfection even down to the very measurements that once again reveal the orderliness of our God. God is a God of order. God is a God of design and beauty and creativity that is unfathomable by man, though that aspect of the image of God is found in man. We are creative. We are inventive. We have different gifts and abilities. That is all a reflection of the nature of God. I can barely draw a stick figure, but I have two children that have been gifted in drawing. They are incredible. They can think of something and they can put it together. But I have other children that are more athletic. They're more into sports. I didn't get any children that are good at math. What happened? I think they got their math genes from their mother. No offense to Kelly. She does not, she does not take offense, I don't think, at that, because she does, not, she does not claim to be good at math. I've taught math. I enjoy math. I know that sounds like a groaner for a lot of people. I enjoy math up to about Algebra 2. Get to about Algebra 2, and you get into that trigonometry stuff and statistics. And I, I learned a, a new term uh, the other day from one of the Purdue students about, uh, you're going to have to help me out, Natalie, Diffie Q? Oh, yeah, differential equations. I didn't even know there was such a class. Differential equations. But where, where does that come from? From a God who is infinitely creative. He is infinite in his knowledge, infinite in his wisdom. So this is the, the new Jerusalem with all its divine and beauty and perfection is simple math for God. We look at this and we're just awestruck. And we, again, we walk into Purdue, a classroom for Bible study on, on uh, a weeknight, and we see these equations on the board with all kinds of different things, I guess, that an engineering class uh, has taken. I look at that and I'm just like, what is that? But it makes sense. Why is that? Why, why is music designed in a mathematical way with order. All of that reflects our God and his beauty and his design and his creativity and the orderliness of his universe, even into eternity. The 12 foundation stones. Uh, we don't have time to read through each and every one of these, but there's a list in verses 20 
19 and 20. I'll take just a minute here uh, of our time and talk about these just quickly here. There's the amethyst, the jacinth, the chrysophrasis, the topaz, the beryl, the chrysolite, the sardius, the sardonyx, the emerald, the chalcedony, the sapphire, and the jasper. And you can read all about those. And they are going to be in their purest, most beautiful form. Again, you can go to the jewelry shops in the mall. And is it Shane Company who gets on there and the commercials? And he talks about going to the finest diamond mines in all the world and hand-picking just the right diamond. And there's the gemologist or whatever they're called that work on those. And for God, that is, that is, just, that is just nothing to him. It's just, it's, it's just simple. It, it's, it's the foundation of the new Jerusalem. What do we put down for the foundation of buildings? Concrete, hard dirt. The foundation is some of the most beautiful jewels, stones, in all the world that we would consider rare and of extremely high value. And they are the foundation stones for the New Jerusalem. And whose names are there? Again, we see the 12 apostles. We see the apostles' names. And again, uh, I believe that Paul will be in- included in there, though it, it could be uh, Matthias from Acts chapter number 1. And then the streets are pure gold, verse 21. I know that's what we often think of when we think of heaven is the pure gold. And some people have talked about gold, pure gold. Gold is the, the asphalt. It's the, it's the streets. I mean, we talk about the potholes around here, and we put concrete and we put asphalt down for pavement for us to drive on, for us to ride our bikes on. Uh, I was impressed. Uh, Murdoch Park, they put down a nice asphalt-paved walking trail up on the top of the hill back behind our house, and we got to to walk that the other day and you can even they have, they have descriptions of the trees and, and everything so if you ever have a science project I had to do a leaf project when I was in fourth grade and my dad took me to Crown Hill Cemetery and we walked around and collected leaves and put those into our, our scrapbook but we have in heaven in the New Jerusalem streets of pure gold streets of pure gold right now gold the stock market has gold valued at $1,850 an ounce. $1,850 an ounce. And I would imagine that that is still not the purest gold that is on the streets of heaven, of the New Jerusalem. Incredible. We continue in the little bit of time that we have left. We talk about the New Jerusalem as being completely Pure. Drop down to verse 17, Revelation 21, verse 17. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel, and the building of the wall. And I need to actually drop down. I think I put down the wrong verse. Actually, it's, it's, it's verses 7 and 8. I'm sorry. I put 17, verses 7 and 8. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The new Jerusalem is completely pure. 
completely pure. None of those who identify by those sins will enter into the new Jerusalem, will enter into heaven. Again, heaven is a place of complete, perfect, sinless inhabitation or habitation. The glory of God, verse number 11, having the glory of God. And we read there, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So we see the glory of God is there, and there's no more curse. Chapter 22, in verse number 3, in the midst of the street of it, I'm sorry, and there shall be no more, verse 3 of chapter 22, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. We see also in this purity that there's no temple. Verse 22. We are completely sinless inhabitants as the redeemed of God. And in chapter 21, in verse 22, and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. God is going to tabernacle with us in heaven in his very presence. So there will no longer be the need for a physical temple, a physical tabernacle. Because we read there that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. There will be, without sin, again, that perfect, pure praise to the Lord. There's no sea. Chapter 21 and verse number 1, as we looked at at the very beginning This is an interesting phrase. We're so used to water being everywhere. There's the river of life, but no sea. We talk about the oceans and the various seas. There will not be the need for the ecological system to function the way it does now. There will not be the need for the sun and the moon and the stars to be the lights of the earth because God will be the light. There won't be the need for the function of the ecological system. We understand the value of water, and we understand the ecological system. Another proof of creation is the very ecological system of water and evaporation. How how could all of that have just evolved in perfect order at exactly the right time and in exactly the right way so that there would be the evaporation and precipitation and the condensation and all of those things. That's right there alone a evidence for creation. But God will be the sun. There won't be, there won't be the seas, the oceans. There will be no nights. We, we think we're thankful for beautiful sunsets. We find it hard to believe that there are some places on the earth where there is Uh, At some points of the year, there is basically 23-plus hours of of daylight. But that's, again, that changes on the other opposite end of the the season. And then it's pretty much dark the rest of the, you know, for certain times of the year for 23-plus hours. We were in Canada, and I think it was like 10 o'clock at night. Correct me, Kelly, if if I'm wrong, but I believe it was like 10 o'clock at night, and it was still bright outside. We were up in northern Manitoba, Canada, on a mission trip, and we had to pull the shades at 10 o'clock at night um, because there was still light coming in. I mean, in heaven, in, in the New Jerusalem, in, in glory, there's no night. The gates are not closed. Why do we close gates? Why do we have locks on our doors, security systems? Will there be a need for that in the New Jerusalem, in heaven? The gates will be wide open. There won't be a need for a ring alarm. 
There won't be a need for a security team. And we won't need the Second Amendment to protect our right to bear arms. There won't be a need for that anymore. We will finally be able to put our guns away and be safe in doing so. And not have to worry about some burglar or the boogeyman or whatever coming to get us. The gates are open. And the glory and the honor of the nations go into it. There's no sin. Verse 27, there's the pure river, the water of life. Will there actually be drinking from that river? I'm not exactly sure, but I think that though there is a physical river, I do think that it is also a symbolic representation. I do believe in a physical river and physical trees of life and the different fruits that are mentioned. Uh, Each month has a different fruit, I believe. That's what the chapter 22 says. But I think that's also symbolic of the richness and the fruitfulness and the glory and the satisfaction of heaven. That's part of what that is describing. The tree of life on both sides, the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit. And then we come down to chapter, or verse 17 of chapter 22. And we'll close here. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. We looked this morning at verses 18 and 19 at the warning of the judgment upon those who add to or take away from the word of God. But isn't it interesting that verse 17, right before that, we see once again the heart of God in one of the last verses of the Bible. What do we see again? An evangelistic appeal for all to come. And take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will, the song says, may come. We see the heart of God, even in these final verses. He wants everyone, everywhere to enjoy heaven. But only by trusting Christ. Only through his son. Only through Jesus Christ. Can we have salvation? Can we be a citizen of heaven and our name be found to enter into the new Jerusalem and experience the new heaven and the new earth? It's only through Jesus Christ. And this offer is there until the final days, as we have been talking about in prophecy, until the final days. For it is appointed a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. But God continues to appeal for all men everywhere to repent, to be saved. And what a glorious thought here as we close uh, this service tonight and as we look there at Revelation 22 and verse number 17. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the awesome glory of heaven. Lord, it is beyond our ability to, to even dream or to imagine. But we have this description in these final chapters that are so rich with the the fullness of all that you have prepared for us and we don't deserve any of it and yet you delight to share the glories of heaven with us sinners but only through Jesus Christ only as redeemed who have repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation, and we thank you, Lord, for the glories of heaven. And Lord, we long for those days. Lord, you've given us 
a calling and a place here on this earth to love you and to serve you and to share the gospel with others. But Lord, we also look forward to the glories of heaven. We thank you for preparing this for us and sharing these truths with us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jake's going to come and lead us and we will close tonight.